My name is Jamie Piles. I joined Samaritan in December of 1996. We were homeschooling our kids and we were already thinking outside the world's box, if you will. And I saw a little tiny classified ad about this new kind of idea I'd never heard of before. My first reaction was, that's the kind of thing that we would do, isn't it? And so I finally called the number, talked to them, and the more I asked them questions, the more I liked their answers. It's been a good week. Hey, y'all, welcome to Cross Politics on the Fight Life Feast Network. Pastor Toby Chuck Knox. I'm the water boy. Beer and, and Psalms. We missed and, that. Um, we did. We need, to, we need to get back to beer and Psalms, but yep. uh, I'm telling you guys. Something's different about you. Texas. I, I can't tell what it is. Something's Texas. different. Something's different. People from Texas. You've been tanning in Texas. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, people from Texas are moving and shaking. What? We got a guest coming on. Right? Who's from the promised land. Oh, really? Yeah. Is that what's going on He's here? He's from the promised land. Oh, yeah. my He goodness. saved that. He didn't I, tell yeah. us that no, before the show. He didn't, didn't say that. I didn't. Hee-haw! <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Samaritan. Deep in the heart of Texas. Yes. All right. Samaritan Ministries is a community of Christians who pay one another's medical bills. It's, it's brilliant just yeah. for its simplicity. Mm-hmm. Here's how it works. When a medical need arises, you choose the provider that's best for you, right for you. You have a say in the treatment you receive. If you like your doctor, you can keep it. Whoa, I've heard that before. Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. like, that's not in the app. Now here's there. the deal. <laughs> no, stop it. Uh, turn your mic off. Even if it's a non-conventional approach, do what you believe is best for your family, then your medical bills are shared with fellow members of Samaritan Ministries. Your need is covered in prayer, and it's affordable, and you can join anytime even today. So learn more today at SamaritanMinistries.org slash crosspolitik. That's SamaritanMinistries.org slash crosspolitik. We're really grateful to have with us apparently a Texan. Yeah. Apparently. Mm-hmm. Mark Meckler is an American political activist, attorney, business executive. Meckler was a co-founder of the Tea Party Patriots before resigning from the organization in 2012. Uh, from February through May 2021, Meckler served as the interim CEO of a social media platform, Parler. Oh, that's probably how the Kanye deal fell apart. It's like, Mark. <laughs> yeah, I want to know Mark. about that. I want to know. He, he currently serves as president of Citizens for Self-Governance and Convention of States Action as an active proponent of a convention to propose amendments in the United States Constitution. Mark, thanks for joining us on CrossPolitik. Hey, it's great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So be, before we get to the Convention of States, how, how did you go from co-founding the Tea Party Patriots to parlor to parlor <laughs> to, to starting the convention of states. How, how do you do that I'm here for this tea? Yeah. Well, so it was actually Tea Party Patriots to convention of states. And in the interim, somewhere in the middle of their parlor, come under attack, get shut down by the, the evil, what I would call the evil tech media cabal. And a friend of mine is, was one of the founders of Parler, one of the people who put the money behind Parler. And I just texted her one day and said, do you need help? I watched that thing implode. Wow. I had built a lot of platforms. I have a tech background. I thought that maybe I could help her fix it. And so I came in and I was in there in the interim, helped them get replatformed, rebuilt their technology stack, got everything in place so that they could be back on the app store. And then once that was done, I just went back to my day job at Convention Estates. Okay. Okay. Well, that's easy. <laughs> I want to do a different show this all of a sudden. This is what I did. I want to do a different show all of a sudden. You want to talk about parlor? I want to talk about platforms, social media, you're building well, we tech. we can get there. Actually, okay. Through some all right. All right. Let's, yeah, let's yeah, see. Yeah. All right. All right. So, so talk to us about uh, 
convention of states. Yeah. What what is it that you're doing there? Um, quickly before Knox tries to get us off, <laughs> derails <track>. us. <laughs> well, so look, I, as one of the co-founders of the Tea Party movement, I saw politics in D.C. up close. What I saw is in 2010, we elected the largest swing class between parties since 1938. I was pretty sure everything was going to change. I was there on Capitol Hill, and I watched them one by one get eaten by the swamp. Some took five minutes, five days, five months. Wow. The vast majority of them got sucked up and eaten alive by the swamp. Wow. And I thought, if electing people isn't how we fix the government, then what do you do? And so I kind of went back home, tried to figure it out. I had a very good friend come to me. His name is Mike Ferris. A lot of your listeners will know him. Viewers will know him. He's yeah, the founder it. of the homeschool movement in America. Right. And he just said, Mark, you're on the wrong path. You think we have a personnel problem in D.C.? We don't. We have a structure problem. And over the last 120 years or so, we've broken the structure of governance in D.C. It doesn't matter who you send. It's not going to work unless we fix the structure. And he pointed out to me that Article 5 of the United States Constitution contains the ways that we can amend the Constitution. The first part of it says that Congress can propose amendments, and the second part says that the states can. And we've never ever done it. They can call for that convention. They can propose amendments, and then those amendments still be part strategy. Uh, we can talk about amendments to impose term limits, not just Congress, but on the deep state staffers and bureaucrats. Mm -hmm. We can talk about fiscal restraints on D.C., and we can talk, and I think this is most important, about scope and power limitations on D.C., in other words, telling them, no, you can't be involved in energy or education or healthcare or the EPA, all the stuff they were never supposed to do. So that's the basic structure of what we're doing. Convention of States Action has over 5 million people involved in the movement now. It takes 34 states to call a convention. So far now, roughly 20 states have done it. I say roughly there's going to be litigation in one state around it, but 20 states have called for that convention, 14 to go. Uh, guys, can you throw up that map? Uh, while we're talking to Mark, I have I have actually a map that's color coded that shows oh. which states have passed. Oh, look at that! Um, They've passed it. So, uh, Article Five it says that Congress can can propose amendments to the Constitution, but it also says this two thirds of the states can propose amendments to the Constitution. So obviously right. he's pushing the state side thing, right? And that's the, Congress. That, that gets us to thirty six. That is that what the number was thirty six. Thirty four to call. Okay, and then once once that. Convention decides on some amendments they want to suggest it takes 38 states to ratify an amendment. Got it. So what are the issues that you're because I got I got all sorts of concerns on what people would call a runaway convention. Right. You know, you, yep. you call a convention and then all of a sudden the liberals get Second Amendment. Uh, undone, right? You know, Man yep. mandate marijuana. Mandate, in all the states. you know, yeah, yeah. Mandate yeah you think babies. the liberals will hijack this? Um, I know, I know. Yeah, <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, and I was thinking, and I'm I think sick. the conservatives would. Um, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. what I was worried about. So, actually. what what issues are you defining things for each state to pass? What issues are you defining? What what is this convention of states supposed to be about if it ever comes into play? Right. So each state has to pass the exact same resolution, or you don't get to convention. There have actually been over four hundred applications for conventions in American history. We've just never gotten to the threshold of two thirds of the states saying that they want to get together to talk about the same thing. So in this case, all the states passing the same resolutions, and the resolution calls for a discussion of three subject matter areas. So number one is anything that would impose term limits. And that's just term limits on Congress. It actually specifically says term limits on members of Congress and federal officials. And that's really important to me because mem limiting members of Congress and not limiting staffers or bureaucrats or things like that, I think that 
creates more problems. I think if you're going to do it, you got to lock the whole thing down and you got to rotate all kinds of people through. I call it the Fauci amendment yeah. because a guy like Fauci should never be, they're too insular. So we need a way to throw those people out. So that's number one. Number two is anything that would propose fiscal restraints on the federal government. Look, if you poll about 85% of Americans say we need term limits, about 85% of Americans say we need a balanced budget of some form. Those numbers have been consistent for over 30 years as polled. And D.C. will never do those things. There, there's no benefit if you're a Washingtonian, if you work in D.C., if you make your money in D.C., why would you want to balance the budget? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When your power comes from spending the money, your money comes from spending the money. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to do what the American people want, the only way we're going to do that is we're going to impose it on them. And so you can impose a balanced budget amendment, tax caps, spending caps. Yep. Here's a wild idea. Yep. How about we make them just use generally accepted accounting principles? You know, this is a true story. I was at the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget during the Tea Party days sitting at a table with a bunch of senior guys there. And I asked them a question. I said, I know you guys don't use generally accepted accounting principles. What principles do you have? And they, it did, it comes out as a joke. They didn't mean it as a joke. They said, we don't have any principles. <laughs> and I know. I mean, I knew that was true fundamentally, wow. but the reality is they literally, there is wow. no guidance for how they do their accounting. So they can just say, hey, we're not going to count that. We're going to push off counting this. You know, for example, there's at least $150 trillion of off-book liabilities that are future things the government's committed to. That's not on the balance sheet for the United States of America. Wait, what? You know, so they'll tell you that they're $34 trillion in debt. The truth is they're closer to about $180 trillion in debt. They just don't count that money. Now, if any publicly traded corporation did that, (laughs) the executives would go to jail. No exaggeration. They would be in jail. Absolutely. We've got to change the way we account so that the American people understand the truth. And then the last subject matter area says we can talk about anything that would impose scope, power, or jurisdictional limits on the federal government. To me, this is the most important thing because I'm a federalist. And this government was set up as a federalist style of government. And that means that the federal government has only the power given to it by the states. There were 17 enumerated powers in the original constitution. I argue, I don't know what the real number is, but it seems like they have 17 million powers today. And we need to shove them back in the constitutional box and take their power away. I'll give you some specific examples. You cannot find in the United States constitution, the authority for an EPA, an FDA, a USDA, virtually the panoply of federal agencies that power is not granted in the constitution that was granted by the courts and the only way for is to call a convention and specifically propose amendments to take the power away wow wow um i I, want to go back a a little bit ago you said you thought um we've had about 120 years i think of bad structure yeah. Um, could you do just sort of, I, I mean, I know this is like, you know, this is a, a multi-volume book set. Like a Prager video for me who needs it. <laughs> yeah. Like I can do that. why 120 years and what are you looking back to and just sort of trace maybe, you know, how we fell down the stairs. Sure. Uh, and it might even be 130 at this point. I've been doing this for 10 years. Yeah. So, uh, I think it starts in the late 1800s with what's called the progressive farmers movement. Mm. And the progressive farmers movement is where, progressivism, quote unquote, really starts in the United States. And it was an uprising of farmers against the elites. The elites at that point were the business classes 
in the big cities. And so they were pushing for stronger representation in the farmers. That ultimately reaches its pinnacle in the 1900s. Woodrow Wilson is the pinnacle president of the early progressive movement. 1913 is the when we get the imposition of the Federal Reserve. I think this is an unconstitutional quasi-public, quasi-private agency that's not beholden to the United States government. I think it's bad. and We don't have the power to audit it. We don't have any idea what goes on inside of it. So you get the Federal Reserve. You get the 16th Amendment in 1913, which is the federal income taxes, something the founders did not believe in. That's right. Direct taxation of the citizen by the federal government. Right. And you get the 17th Amendment, which is the direct election of senators. Most people don't know senators originally were appointed by the state legislatures. Very healthy check and balance in the system because a senator's primary job prior to 1913 was to say no to the federal government. I mean, imagine a senator goes home to a state today and says, I'm very excited because we just voted for an unfunded mandate. The federal government's going to tell you what to do and you have to pay for it and you have to tax your people for it. So you'll get blamed for it, but you have no power over it. Back before 1913, if he had voted for that, the states would have said, you're fired. And, you know, Donald Trump's famous line, you're fired. (laughs) But now for a senator, the natural incentive is to accumulate power in Washington, D.C., and not in their state. And then there's one more thing structurally that happens in 1913 that most people forget about, don't they're not even aware of. You know, there there comes this fundamental question. We have 435 members of the House of Representatives. Most people, if they follow politics at all, know that number. Where's that number come from? Where do we get 435 representatives? Not in the Constitution. So how did we come to that? Well, in 1913, you get an act of Congress that sets the number of members of the House at 413. Now, if we kept with the original formula of the framers of the Constitution, we would have roughly 7,000 members of the House of Representatives today instead of 435. So what this means, in effect, is we have lost the idea and the actual structural function of being a representative represents on average 700,000 people. There are districts with over a million people in them. One human being can't represent a million people. One human being could barely represent the original formula of 50,000. So these are some of the major structural changes. Now, if I can, I'll go to one more thing, which is there's something that happens in the 1930s. In 1931, there's what's now become a seminal case in Supreme Court jurisprudence, it's called Wickard versus Filburn. Yeah. And this takes place, and it is a case about a farmer in Ohio, and the farmer is growing wheat for his own consumption and for his family's consumption, for his animals' consumption. He does not sell any wheat, and he does not buy any wheat. But there are quotas at that point in our history on how much wheat a farmer can grow. And if you grow more than the quota, then you, you get... And so the federal government imposes penalties on this farmer... And he says, well, you have no authority over me. How can you have authority over me? I'm just growing wheat for my own consumption. And they said, well, we have authority over you under the Interstate Commerce Clause. And the Interstate Commerce Clause says that the federal government can regulate interstate, regulate interstate commerce. And he says, well, I'm not engaged in commerce. I didn't sell anything and I didn't buy anything. And the federal government's argument in that case is exactly. (laughs) And that seems insane. Like, I don't. I'm a lawyer and I look at that and I'm like, I don't understand what's the argument. And they said, look, the deal is if you hadn't grown your own wheat, you would have been out on the markets and you would have bought wheat. So by growing your own wheat, you've now affected interstate commerce. And what that means oh. in effect is wow. doing nothing is doing something. And that means the federal government 
anything. And this is an insane decision in 1931. There's a whole line of cases that span from 1931 to the common era. And those cases give the federal government essentially infinite power. And all those agents I mentioned earlier, USDA, FDA, uh, Department of Education, EPA are all authorized, quote unquote, I use air quotes for that, under the Commerce Clause interpretation of the United States Supreme Court. And I'll close. We as originalists, and I assume I'm talking to three guys who are originalists, constitutionalists, oh, yeah. Yeah. we look at the Constitution. What did it mean when it was written? It doesn't matter what we think it means now. What did the framers mean? What was common usage? So if you go back to 1787, when this language was written, regulate is something completely different. The word regulate meant to regularize or smooth out. They didn't have a federal register, 80,000 pages. They didn't understand regulation the way we do. So it meant smooth out. Interstate meant the same thing. But in 1787, the word commerce doesn't mean business. It means the shipment of goods. So the power given to Congress was to smooth out the shipment of goods across state lines. I always want to know why. Why would they do that? Well, in 1787, during convention, New York and New Jersey were about to come to military incoming shipping port for the states, and they were imposing tariffs on foreign goods. So the goods that came into that harbor would then go to New Jersey and would be much more expensive. And New Jersey said, no, we're not going to do that. And they're about to go to war. And so these guys in convention say, well, that's not going to work. We're going to have to give the federal government a tiny bit of power to make sure we don't get into these kind of tariff disputes that lead to war. And so now what we do is we say, well, that covers everything and that's not okay. We've got to fix that. Wow. Wow. That, that was, did you take notes? (sighs) I was taking taking notes. I I, I went back to school right there. All right. So like the biggest, the biggest response in all this is you're opening up a box, a Pandora's box that we don't want to open up. Yeah, right. look, but look at the box we're in. No, look at the box we're in. We already in Pandora's uh, right. box. Uh, and, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's called, usually people term, uh, use the term a runaway convention. Right. We already so, in it. So we already <laughs> in it. So, <laughs> Knox, will you let me finish? No, okay. <laughs> all right, all right. And, and I'm so, going with Knox. I'm just going to shut down. You got it, Knox. You nailed it. <laughs> Knox, will you answer this question for Mark? <laughs> I think he's already answered the question. Yeah. So, you know, let's say we get 34 states. They vote. We go back to a constitutional convention. And then the liberals come in and figure out how to, like, come in and vote to, let's say, eliminate the Second Amendment. Our gun rights. Gone. So now the constitutional convention actually becomes something worse than what we're trying to fix some things. And then it got worse. Um, Yeah. So why are you such a problem, Mark? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but you have to ask my wife that question because it'll be 30 years in August. Yeah. Hey, Congratulations. glory. Ah, glory. That's awesome. All right. So I obviously hear this all the time, and this is the primary, actually the only argument against what we're doing. There's a couple of things I want to lay a foundation for here is, okay. is one, um, it's important to know who's for this and who's against it generally, right? Like this is, we can't all be experts on everything. I, on this because it's what I do for a living, but there's a lot of things I'd come to you guys and say, you know more about this, so tell me what you think, and I'm going to put a lot of weight in your opinion. I might not make a decision because you tell me something, but I'm going to I'm going to lean on you if it's something you've spent years on. So if you look at the pros and the cons in this camp, every single nationally known conservative, notice I didn't say Republican, every single nationally known conservative who's weighed in on this issue has weighed in on in favor of convention of states. 
And that's Mark Levin. It's been Shapiro. It was Rush Limbaugh when he was alive. Kurt, Kurt uh, Cameron signed off. Uh, Rick Santoro. Kurt Cam- yep. Kurt Cameron's know. in. Rick Green. David Barton. Cross right? so not ev- on the Everybody list. that you would know and respect. On the other side, and this is really important, five years ago on Good Friday, led by Common Cause and Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, these are the two main Soros organizations, They put together a coalition, the largest left-wing coalition in the history of the United States of America, larger than ever, even in a presidential primary for somebody on the left, over 250 groups, including La Raza, Planned Parenthood, MoveOn.org, Daily Cause, Hillary Clinton personally, Howard Dean personally, they're all in the we're opposed camp. And their argument is the runaway convention argument. Yeah. And so yeah. you've got yeah, all these all these people, every baby killing, America hating, communist loving organization in the United States of America is against us. In fact, this week, Senator Russ Feingold, the former communist senator from Wisconsin who moved to California, wrote a whole article about how we're a bunch of white supremacists just trying to take over the country. And that's why we're holding a simulated convention of states here in a couple of weeks. So you got to know the camps. Now let's go to the substance of the argument. I'm going to use the segment because that's the one you brought up. And that's yeah. the one I hear the most often. Yeah. Just a little bit of background here. My son's a Marine. My mom's a cop. I'm a firearms fanatic. We build our own weapons here at home. We love our guns here in the Meckler household. So I'd never do anything that would put any firearms right at risk. I am a Second Amendment absolutist. Uh, Chuck Cooper was Ronald Reagan's personal constitutional attorney during the Reagan administration. He was a litigator for the NRA for 30 years. He wrote a letter. He's on my legal board of advisors. Said it's ridiculous that this puts the Second Amendment at stake. Now, those are all opinions and just periphery. So let's get into substance here. The substance goes like this. Currently today in the United States of America, praise God, there are now 27 states that have constitutional carry. That means go down to the store, buy a firearm, strap it on your hip, walk out of the store and carry that firearm. You need no permit. There's yep. no money to be paid. Yep. No, And that's the way it should be. That, that's our God-ordained right. Amen. Right, so we got 27 now, and that's been climbing year by year. There are currently 24 states where you can carry your handgun inside of a state legislature. I know this. I do it personally in the states where it's allowed. In fact, in Texas, we have the fast pass. If you got your handgun and you've chosen to get a CCW in Texas, which you don't need, you literally bypass security. You just give them your your license and you go right in. We like people with firearms in our legislature. 24. There are currently 14 state legislatures where you could take an AR, rack one in the chamber, sling that across your back, walk inside the legislature, sit in the gallery and watch the proceedings. Now, I'm not recommending that you do that, but you can in 14 states. So now let's do basic math. If it takes 38 states to ratify an amendment, that means it takes only 13 states to stop any amendment, right? That math makes sense. The inverse, right? Unless you're a you gotta get where there's 58 okay. states. But <laughs> right. Yeah. So 50 states, you got to get to 38 to ratify, right. 13 stop it, right. which means you need only one house in each of the most conservative 13 states in America to say no to any amendment. Really, if you know how the legislative process works, you need one committee chairman in one house in each of the 13 most conservative states in America. I would posit this to you. If we can't get 13 states to stop the repeal of the Second Amendment, the country's gone anyway. All of us should quit talking. We should just collect our firearms, our ammunition and our food, and we should go to the hills. I would suggest people collect ammunition and food anyway. I'm a fan of that. But I don't think we've lost our country yet. 
And I've made this offer and I'll make it to your listeners. If you believe that that could happen, then send me that amendment and your list of 38 states that will ratify it. I'll call you personally. I'll have a phone conversation with you. But I've made that offer literally to millions of people. You know, I've been on Shapiro and Hannity and all those shows. My personal email address, mmeckler at cosaction.com. I've asked for people to tell me the conservative amendments they're afraid of or the, the liberal amendments they're afraid of as conservatives. And you don't have to do the legal work, just generally, right? You don't have to do it in legalese. And then the 38 states that will ratify. And in 10 years, it'll be my 10-year anniversary doing this on the 13th of August, I've received precisely that many emails. Right. Because you cannot do it. This is a fantasy that was given to us as a fever dream by the radical left to keep us from using the constitution to save the constitution. And by the way, there's tons of documentary proof where the runaway argument came from. I'm happy to go into that if you want me to. Wow. So, okay. There's a, I have thoughts just running and bouncing all over my head right now. <laughs> Let's okay? get crazy. So I'm just going to just vomit some of this out. So work with me here. Okay. You got um, it. Nice. Go for it. So here's, here's a couple things. Um, it's, has this ever been tried before? Has this ever been, have we ever done this in American history? This hasn't been, ha hasn't ever happened. There's not been a convention of states. We've been trying since the very beginning. There've been over 400 applications, but this is important. There've been 41 interstate conventions of a variety of kinds. States do this all the time and get together, debate and discuss stuff and do things they have the authority to do together. And so we've been doing this convention, no records of the convention doing something that they were not called to do ever in American history. Okay. So, you know, earlier you were talking about, you know, I can't remember who it was that told you that it's not about getting people in to the office. It's more about the structure. And if the structure is broken, then you have a problem. Yep. Okay. So work with me here in my head as you're going through all this. And as I'm processing it, I'm thinking with the populace that we have currently, if the, you went all the way back 130 years ago now, the people were closer towards the constitution at that point. They're coming out of the civil war, right? Um, if, if they are the ones who are creating this type of problem for us that we're dealing with here in 2023, it just keeps dominoing out of control. How much time does this actually buy us if we don't have a populace who can keep up with the constitution? It seems to me now if we were just to follow and and agree and try and implement the Constitution as it's written, we wouldn't be where we're currently at. But because of the people and where we're at and the people we elect, we're just side skirting the realities of the Constitution to make up our own forms of Constitution. So if you go back and we, we retrofit this thing, we get it right. What's to stop? How much time does that buy us before we have to do it again? Don't we have a bigger problem than just the Constitution itself if your people are messed up? That's good. Yeah. I'm going to answer that with the second part first, what you okay, just said, yeah, yeah. which is, don't we have a bigger problem than the Constitution itself? My answer is absolutely. And and the absolutely, to me, starts with the heart of the country, and it's a heart that's turned away from God. Mm. If we don't turn to God, if we don't Good. pray to the Lord to redeem our land, if we don't go back to the book and the bottom line, the real instruction manual, put the Constitution aside. I mean, the Constitution really is biblically based. So if we don't go back to the Bible, if we don't go back to our faith, we're not going to save the country anyway. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that I think is America, I travel around, I meet men like you and women everywhere who are in the fight, whose hearts are in the right place, who are servants of God. 
Like, I mean, the reason I'm the reason I'm even with you guys today is because Gabe's a hero. He was willing to actually be arrested. Mm. Not a lot of people are willing to do that kind of a thing, right? And put themselves on the line. But I will tell you, as somebody who's been in 48 states, I meet people like you all over the country, everywhere I go. So I know that this revival is taking place in America. It's hidden from us. And the reason it's hidden is because the mainstream media doesn't want to cover it. I talk about it all the time about the people. I can go to Manhattan and find people just like you. I can go to San Francisco and find people just like you. I I don't believe it. (laughs) I I promise you, Mark, you're going a little too far. (laughs) So look, so yes, look, the spirit matters first and Mm. foremost. And, and so we're heavily engaged in that fight as well. I am all across the country. Okay, there's a web page I helped put together called Bible and Politics. And one of the reasons I think Gabe and I hit it off so well, because you cannot separate those two things. If you separate the Bible from politics, what you're talking about is evil. So all of that stuff, yes, that foundation has to be there. So can't do anything without that, I would say. But we got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Now, where where I'm going to disagree with you is about the Constitution. And the reason I'm going to disagree with you is I hear this all the time. Mark, if we just followed the Constitution, everything would be fine. And so I would ask you the question that I've asked thousands of times across the country is, well, which Constitution are you talking about? Mm. And you're going to look at me like, ah, well, that's a. What do you mean? That's a crazy question. Well, here's, well. here's the reality. <laughs> well, we got. I'm going to show you. Right, we got two constitutions in America today. Mm. I think I got. I don't have the big one here. Like I can grab it off the shelf later. We have a constitution. You can order this from the government publishing office. It's over three thousand pages. It says on the spine, "The Constitution of the United States of America." Three thousand pages. It weighs over ten pounds. It contains every Supreme Court case issued by those robed men and now women. I well, I can't say they're women. I don't know. We, we don't got know one. I can't find a woman. Oh, ouch! <laughs> robed. Zers or whatever they call themselves now. Uh, Every case is in there. Okay. And so when you look at what they do in Washington, D.C., largely what they do falls within that book. And that's the book by which our country is governed, whether we like it or not. You know, after Marbury versus Madison, the Supreme Court became made itself the ultimate arbiter of the United States Constitution. And so that book governs us. And so the purpose for calling a convention of states is to get rid of a whole bunch of that stuff that was layered on top of the original Constitution and the Bill of Rights and go back to something closer to the original. Because if we say, let's just follow the Constitution, they can say, well, we are. Yeah. So wait, uh, so this... Uh, probably a quick answer here that you could give me, but you said Marbury um, gave the judges supreme decision authority over the Constitution. What was the Supreme Court's role before? I've always known the Supreme Court's role as that. Uh, what's the Supreme Court's role before that? Yeah, so it's weird if you if you look at the history and especially look at the Federalist Papers. There's very little in there about the Supreme Court yeah. or about the courts generally, right? It says that there should be a Supreme Court and then whichever minor courts that Congress shall decide they want to create. And that's pretty much it. And there's very little about it in the Federalist Papers. And this is a place where the the framers, I would argue, didn't get it right. And they didn't get it right because they didn't have an experience with a court system that was built like this. And they originally thought that each branch of government would interpret the Constitution. And so the Supreme Court, if you look, and maybe it was for disputes between states like, this is really important. The Supreme Court has a very important role in disputes between states. What if New York and New Jersey have a fight about 
pollution in the rivers or or in the you know in the ocean surrounding both of those states in their harbors they've got to have a way to arbitrate those things and so that's, that's really primarily what the federal courts are about <laughs> Yeah. What's that? I was I was gonna say that's called picking up arms in the state. There you go. Out, you Which know. is what they would have done the back cuffs. then, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yeah. so they gave them the federal court. The idea of a Supreme Court was to do that. And in Marbury, and I look, I think we can argue about this and scholars still argue about it. The Supreme Court made themselves the ultimate arbiter of the Constitution. Yeah. And I think yeah. that creates a problem. Right. Um, the branches, I think, were supposed to interpret the Constitution by themselves as well. And there were supposed to be checks and balances between the branches. One of the things that the framers said about the Supreme Court, they worried about how weak the Supreme Court was going to be. Mm. And now it's our strongest. It's the supreme branch of government. Oof. It's the ultimate decider. And they said that the Supreme Court has or a purse. So how is it going to enforce anything that it wants right. to do? That's right. They were worried about that. And instead, it's become the ultimate power base in the United States. Mm. Wow. Um, wow. Do you want to read the ad and then I want to? Uh, uh, no, because it's actually not a good ad. Okay. <laughs> I decided not to read it. Um, so. You know, I keep going, but there's a couple, you know, I have so much here. Again, I'm just bouncing around. Go, when go. You, when you were sure. talking about in the beginning that you you were electing people and the good people got eaten up by the swamp. Why is the swamp so powerful to eat up men who seem to have good conscience and who are capable? Yeah, I love that question. And, and I think it's really important because when I went in, I would have said something different than I'd say now. Uh. You know, I was a grassroots activist. I still am a grassroots activist. Our natural posture as an activist is to despise politicians. Like you just look at them, you're like, they're slimy. They don't have any hard values. I've learned over 15 years doing this. Now that's generally not true. I mean, there are people like that. They're bad people in, in church or wherever you go, but most of them got elected. They wanted to do the right thing. And then they get in. I'll, I'll give you some of the pressures they face. Knox, let's say you go in and your your district, one of the most important things that you have in your district is you've got a water problem. And let's say you've had flooding along a river, the river's under federal jurisdiction. I don't even think that should be the case, but Thanks. it is. And you need some form of, of dike project or dam project to prevent the flooding in your district. And you campaign for that up and down your district. And they said, Knox is the guy that's going to deliver this water project. And you go to D.C., and when you're in D.C., you propose a bill to get this water project. And that bill's moving and moving and moving, and you're lobbying and putting all your political capital into it. And right before it goes to the floor for a vote, some guy from Illinois says, you know, Knox, what we're going to do is we're going to tack on uh, $2 billion for the Obama president. No, I'm completely against that. Like, well, yeah, but if you want your water bill to pass, there's a whole bunch of us aren't going to vote for your water bill unless you vote for the Obama Wokeness Center. Wow. And now you're in a bad spot. Right. And let's say, I don't know what you should do in that spot. Let's say you vote for your water bill because this is what you promised your constituents. And now you go home, you know what you get? You don't get the thank you for the water bill. You get, hey, man, Knox, he's a bad guy. He's not a real conservative. He voted for the Obama Wokeness Center. Yeah. And, and so these guys get put in an impossible situation. This is it. There's a constitutional fix for this. We call it a single subject amendment. Yep. You can't, leadership yep. will say to you, Knox, if you don't play ball, buddy, if you don't play ball, you're not on any committees. You're going to have no influence. Congratulations, you got elected. You're going to get nothing done for your constituents. We realize you sacrificed mightily to be here. We don't really care about that. That's really sweet and all, but we don't care about that. You got to play ball with the leadership or the stuff you promised your constituents doesn't get done. Oh, and by the way, in two years, we're going to run around the way it's built is stacked against regular people who go to D.C. who really just want to get good stuff done. Wow. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. No, uh, no. Okay. So 
that was a great answer. So let's say, for instance, you know, you have this group of people. Let's say you, I'm always concerned about revival before Reformation. And I think your answer previously to this was really good. Like we have to have both in. So let's say that we're working for the states. How do we work on the more local level to create the Reformation so that the revival come? It's not a top down, um, uh, you know, influenced to the people. It's from the bottom up. So I love that question because I'm a grassroots guy and grassroots is never top down. Sometimes I'll get a politician call me up and he'll say, uh, hey, Mark, you really need to get the grassroots to do X. And I just start to laugh. Mm. It's like, oh, so you've never done any grassroots politics, right? (laughs) Because if I go out and I try to get the grassroots to do X, uh, you know, that's grounds for losing any influence I might have with the grassroots. My job is to go out and find out what the grassroots consider important to them, what they're passionate about, and try to give them the tools and the support and the air cover they need to accomplish those things. This is where structure comes in again, Knox, because this is the Convention of States, the best organizing principle for grassroots activism ever invented. I didn't invent it. The framers invented it, and they didn't even intend what I'm about to tell you, but here's why it's so important. If I said to you, Knox, What I need you to do, I know Wednesday night, you normally have Bible study and you got your kids baseball practice and your daughter's going to ballet. And I know you're really busy, but man, I just need you to go to the city council meeting and and you just need to watch and learn what they're doing. You're going to be like, yeah, brother. I mean, I got a life and I got a job and I got kids and my wife expects me to, I can't do that. And also it sounds really terrible and boring. (laughs) And so why would I want to do that? And Instead, so what I've learned over 15 years of activism is you better be able to pitch a big picture to people that they're really going to make a difference. And so for a convention of states, it's a big national project. And what I can say to people with absolute honesty and integrity is I'm going to teach you how to get your hands around the throat of the federal government and shove it back in the constitutional box. And by the way, it doesn't matter if Congress doesn't like it or the president or the courts, you have the authority to do this. And people go, whoa, that sounds cool. That's exciting. That's sexy. And then I can say to them, the only way you can do it is getting to know your local representative because he's the guy with the power. So now what I'm doing is I'm teaching them how to be engaged at the local level. When state representative Knox is at the local diner holding a town hall, you got to go there and you got to meet with him. And then what you're doing is you're learning, oh, how do I build relationships with people who have influence over the local political scene? Once you learn how to do that, what we find is people get engaged in school boards and city councils, and we teach people how to run for office and how to build influence. But it's all ground up. The key is get them in with something that they believe is big enough to take their time in a way that they think is valuable and meaningful, and then teach them the very bottom levels of activism. Because in my opinion, that foundation has to be built. And really, that's where all the power is. Mm. Wow. That's amazing. (sighs) Okay. I got more questions. (laughs) How do, you know, when you start laying this case out, I feel like part of you know, the, the more I've gotten into politics, the more I begin to read history, I, I'm starting to realize I know a little about what's come before us. And I think it's intentional that uh, we don't know our past, because if we knew our past, we probably wouldn't take what they're trying to give us in the future, in the, in the current. Agreed. So yep. where do we start to understand some of the turn? So give me some books, some research that I can do to start having. So because I wanted to you said you've been in this for 10 years. I, I don't have I have seven kids. But I would like to be able to speak in a way and understand in a way that I can have that same sort of knowledge that you have 
because it's as you're talking, I'm putting together some of the brokenness that I see in our system. And I'm saying, oh, that yeah. makes sense here. Oh, I, I'm i watching the Supreme Court ever since, you know, Roe v. Wade uh, and, and uh, the Civil Rights Act 1964. I'm seeing the domino effects of that. And I'm saying, man, if so, there's other Supreme Court rulings that have other effects that I haven't mm-hmm. been able to see. Yeah. How do I trace this back? What are some books I can read that will help me have a good handle of this so I can start understanding this better? So I have two primary resources that I would recommend. And the first is uh, my good friend, Rick Green. And I've helped him with a course and a bunch of others have called Biblical Citizenship. Mm. This, And I think, look, I, I would say this is one of the most important things I've ever done working with Rick. I mean, I think he's an incredible man of God. He runs an organization called Patriot Academy. Uh, I recommend everybody plug their kids into Patriot Academy. But Biblical Citizenship is an eight-week course that runs you through a lot of the stuff that I just talked about, mm. about, and it runs you through the, all the way to how we got where we are. It runs and you so where? I would say, so that part that's of the, it, foundational. It, it runs you from where to, to where? Uh, does it keep breaking up on you guys? Yeah, we it did. did. It yeah, did. I'm sorry. One more time. One more time for us. I, I'm getting a little of that too on my end. Okay. So what biblical citizenship does is it gives you the foundation starting with how did we get the constitution? Like, why do we have the First Amendment and what is it? What did it in, mean to the framers who wrote it and, and the people who debated it? So you get that and then you get to, well, how do we get to the interpretation of the First Amendment we have today? Yeah. Like, what's the transition over time? So you get that whole span of history in eight weeks. Of course, it's mm. relatively cursory because it's eight weeks uh, and it's uh, usually an hour to two hours once live. Rick Green teaches. There are other people, but there's a lot of great people come on and teach. Pastor Jack Hibbs is is one of the featured speakers. MacArthur. There's a whole bunch of wonderful people that come on and speak. So you get that around. There's a key in that, Knox, to me, which is how do we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and the Redeemer of the earth? How do we act as citizens? How are we to understand and on any and all of that knowledge is David Barton's Wall Builders. Problem with going to wallbuilders.com is I usually go there and end up buying five books and trying to find the time to read <laughs> all five books. Yeah. Uh, I would say the if I had one book to recommend, it would be The Story of America. Uh, that's it, it just literally sets the whole foundation. I would say Story of America takes biblical citizenship and paints it in full. It's something that you could read with your kids and study with your kids. It's just extraordinary. So there's that. And then now if you're somebody who wants to do the deep dive and really get into it and do do some really interesting history, my two favorite historians, uh, one is a guy by the name of Bernard Balin, B-A-I-L-Y-N. When Balin started looking at history, he realized we're looking at history through a backwards telescope, as I describe it. You look at what this historian wrote about what that historian wrote about what this historian, right? So it gets further and further away from you. And Balin was one of the first to say of the American revolution, I'm only going to look at it through the writings, speeches, newspaper chronicles of the men and women of the time. Mm. And I want to know what they thought. What did they say? What did they say about the other people who were saying things? And so I would say the Balin book that I would start with, he's got a bunch of them, is called Origins of American Political Philosophy. It goes back prior to the American Revolution, and it explains to us, why would they fight? Like, it's kind of an amazing thing. Why did they decide to do this? What was it in their 
personal constitutions in their history that allowed them to have the fortitude to fight against the greatest empire ever known. The second one, uh, my second favorite author, actually, they're both equal to me, was a woman by the name of Pauline Meyer, and it's M-A-I-E-R. Uh, Pauline Meyer was a historian at all places, uh, MIT. She was a student of Bernard Balin. Uh, my favorite book of hers, there's actually two. The first I would recommend is called The Old Revolutionaries. The Old Revolutionaries is a very interesting book written, again, first from uh, the perspective of people who lived it and people who wrote about it back then. It's about the difference between the founders of the country, the men and the families who philosophized about, fomented, and fought the American Revolution, and those who gave us the Constitution. And we have a natural mm. tendency mm. to call them all the founders. Mm. And that's not accurate, mm. because largely the men who debated and signed that Constitution were different men than fomented and fought the American Revolution. And there was a pretty big gulf between them. Mm. A lot of the guys that fought the Revolution didn't like what the Constitution ended up looking like. They thought it gave the federal government too much power, looked too much like England. So The Old Revolutionaries is a great book. And then the second one I would read to understand the United States in its essence is called Ratification. And she did the greatest study of the history of ratification that I've ever seen. If you love the ratification, a University of Wisconsin put out a 35-volume set of every document that's ever been found about the ratification, Go speeches me. that weren't given. I actually have it on my shelf back there. It's a life goal, a bucket list to read all of it. I'm on volume four of 35, wow. and I'm 61, so we'll see how much time God gives me. Yeah. Uh, but those, So that gives you kind of some resources. And then, Knox, I want to give you a brief story because this kind of sums it all up for me. When we come to the period of the American Revolution, it's crazy to me that these guys fought the American Revolution. It doesn't make any sense. These guys were farmers and merchants and lawyers. They were not soldiers, right? And if you think about it for us, for sitting here at this table today or in this studio, right. it's like I said to you, by the way, there's a battalion of Marines and they're coming to town tomorrow. So go get your firearms and let's fight them. <laughs> like That's insane. Right. That's just crazy. That's what these guys were doing. Best trained, armed, fed, paid, organized, disciplined army in the history of the world. And a bunch of farmers are going to fight against him. In 1843, there's a historian. His name's Mellon Chamberlain. 43, a lot of years after the revolution. Right. And he's traveling the country and he's collecting the stories of the last remaining Minutemen. Now, in 1843, they're old. You're talking late 80s, early 90s. Today, we all know people like that. Back then, that's like Methuselah. Right. If you knew a guy in your town and he was 90, everybody knew that guy. And so he's in North Carolina and he happens across a guy by the name of Captain Levi Preston. And he goes to interview Preston. And he asks him a series of questions. He says, Captain Preston, when you went out to fight those men that day, Preston was at Lexington and Concord. And he says, when you went out to fight those men that day, what did you mean by it? And he said, was it the Stamp Act? Were you frustrated by buying stamps? And, you know, it was really just a tax and it was unjust. And he said, stamps? Governor Bernard locked those in the armory. I'm sure I didn't buy any. Hmm. He says, well, was it the tax on tea? Maybe you were frustrated by the high tax on British tea. And he said, son, we were farmers. We didn't drink any tea. We drank coffee. <laughs> yeah. So no tax on tea, no stamps. He said, well, maybe you were reading the great revolutionary writers, Milton and Burke and uh, Payne on common sense. And he said, I've never heard of those men. We read the Bible, the Almanac, Psalms, but those men you speak of, I know not those names. 
So he's baffled by this. And he asks him, well, maybe it was the heavy hand of British tyranny. Like he's going big. He's got nothing else. <laughs> and so he says, well, why would you fight? What brought you out to Lexington and Green that day? And he said, son, when we went out to fight them redcoats, we meant only one thing. We had always governed ourselves. We always intended to. Them redcoats, they intended that we shouldn't. And in my opinion, that is the single best summary of the American political philosophy that I've ever heard in my life. And I would sum it up like my kids did when they're little. My kids would say to each other, you're not the boss of me. And I, that's in our DNA, right? And I think today what makes us so uncomfortable, you can't tell me that. You can't tell me how to use my own land. You can't tell me I got to get a shot. You can't tell me how much water goes in my toilet. Like we hate this stuff. It's just in us. And if you read Meyer and if you read Balin, you will start to understand where that comes from. Knox, there's 158 years between the Mayflower Compact and the American Revolution. And there's so few books written. Wow. And that's when we learn to govern ourselves. I think that's the most important period in American history. Because if you want to go back and pastor, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the theologian, I'm not. I don't think you find self-governance in human history before the United States of America. You have to go all the way back to the Old Testament when they chose judges from among themselves. Hmm. Because everything else was monarchy and dictatorship and tyranny. But God told the Israelites that the proper form of government for man under God's laws is to choose your leaders from among yourselves. Yeah, it was only the uh, that's, that's pretty much right. But it was only the the, the Scottish Presbyterians. I was going to say, was, don't forget Scot John Knox and those guys. John, John Knox is is the father of them, and, and you know, and he was learning from Calvin. But you're right in terms yep. of a, in terms of a country. That's where it came. Hey, Mark, yep. where can people follow you at and keep track of what you're doing? Yeah, people can find me at conventionofstates.com or they can follow me on Twitter at Mark Meckler. It's M-E-C-K-L-E-R. I'll be following you if I don't already. Yeah, man. Thank you so I'll much for coming right on the show, man. I got a question I want to ask you when we go off air. I'll save that okay. when we're done. If you're single, hey, get thanks for your time, guys. You're the best. Appreciate, appreciate you. you. Really appreciate do. It. If you're single, get married. If you're married, have you some kids. And if you have kids, go baptize them. Until next time, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go fight, laugh, and feast. This is Cross Politic. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow. Through the Spirit, God's Word changes lives, it cuts us to the heart and reshapes us. As you strive to read and study scripture, having a good set of tools can help. From setting reminders for a great reading plan to word studies and commentaries that shed light on difficult passages to listening on the go, the Olive Tree Bible app can help you dig into the word wherever you are. Olive Tree Bible app, read, study, listen, anywhere.